welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. Isham invites you to log on, listen, and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood. Welcome to the Process This Podcast. Can you believe it? This is episode number 50. Thanks for joining me today. I hope that you had a happy sterile processing week. Special thanks to all of you that have entered the step and weight loss contest. Next episode, I will give you my updated numbers. Thank you to those folks who have sent in yours. So we are back for another episode, episode number five in the last 100 yard series. I hope you've enjoyed these conversations as much as I have. We have another CE program today, so let's get started with the last 100 yards. The Last 100 Yards is an experience like no other, an in-depth series that focuses on different issues and topics in ways we never have before from a 360 perspective. Join me as we investigate topics affecting sterile processing and packaging with the help of scientists, manufacturers, engineers, and sterile processing professionals just like you. Partner with me and the KIPP committee as we explore The Last 100 Yards. Welcome to the last 100 yards. We are here again with our friends from the KIPP committee. Now this is episode number five in the series and we're focused on packaging and what happens in that last 100 yards. So today we're discussing questionable practices. So for you guys out there, what are some of the questionable practices you guys see? I wanna start this off. One of the, the biggest ones that I see is the, when something gets dropped on the floor, So let's just say, we'll take, for instance, the situation of sterilized cart was just pulled out. They're cool. Now they're taking stuff off the cart and the instrument or the peel pack, for instance, falls to the ground. Now there's no holes in it. They hold it up. There's no holes. Is that package still good? That's one of the things that comes up quite often. Um, There's talk out there that the manufacturers tested these peel packs to be dropped from a certain distance and still remain sterile. Um, From what I hear, that's not so much the case. Um, So, but that is definitely something that we really need some clarity on and whether that it's still okay to be used. Um, The other concept that comes up is that because there's no holes that it's fine to be used, but then other people say, well, the pressure could have impacted it and pushed in some microorganisms somehow, somewhere. So, hey, Melinda, I'll, I'll, I'll. Uh, this is Jen. Um, I'll, I'll touch on this one a little bit because you and I have talked about this at length before. With respect to drops, medical devices are packaged and tested to be able to withstand drops, but the way they're tested is in likely a different form than how they may be dropped in the healthcare setting. So they're tested in usually a shelf carton or a shipping carton uh, for drop testing. They're not tested as a single pack typically or in its sterile barrier system, that primary pack that you know you would handle as you opening it into the OR field. Uh, we're aware that, um, that things happen and everything, but the intent is that that shelf carton really shouldn't get removed until you're about to use the device. That's how it's been tested uh, and, and will guarantee your best success for keeping it sterile until the point of use. Yeah, and Jen, this is uh, Dave Tregrossi uh, and Melinda. The, uh, I would I would uh, probably venture to say that wherever you're doing your testing in the lab, they're de- definitely not, your floors are definitely not as dirty as our floors at the hospital, right? 
You know, well, just there, there's that, and we don't necessarily test for that part, right? But when it comes to dropping it in its single pack form, to Melinda's point, it may look like everything is okay, but pinholes happen, um, and they can happen on impact like that, and you might not be able to see them that well. So, absolutely, it and often takes a really trained eye to be able to see those pinholes. So, people should be doing training on a regular basis and visual inspection on sterile packaging. So yeah, the we, recommendation we, would be if it drops to reprocess it. Yeah, and I think so, that's possible for reprocessable devices, but when you have a terminally sterile device, I mean, the you know what Melinda, Aaron, and and Ralph and I have talked about is when in doubt, throw it out, right? Right, absolutely. Um, when in if doubt, you can't, if it's a single-use terminally sterile device, mm-hmm. you can't use it. Right. Yeah, so, this actually came up when we. Uh, in one of our other episodes, when we spoke about event-related sterility, the not only the uh, you know the when in doubt throw it out, and um, a lot of these issues, you know, like we're always going to try to err on the side of caution, and uh, and then even I think earlier in some of our uh, offline discussions, we spoke about policy and procedure, right? And I think Melinda, this goes to to your point that you see this come up online quite frequently and. We really can't answer this for anyone. You, the facility has to do really their own risk assessment and and put it into their policy and procedure so that they have that guidance, whether it's going to be when in doubt, throw it out, or whether there's an inspection that occurs. You know, it just, they really have to spell that out for each facility. Yeah, so, dude, I, I agree with you with the policy. The, the concern that I had with the whole situation is the misunderstanding of that testing information. So, you know, like Jen just said, that whole concept of dropping it, but it's being tested in their shipping container or their um, original carton, not a single peel pack being dropped from, you know, six feet up or five feet. I don't know. I'm not that tall. It's not six feet, but okay. So five feet. (laughs) Um, So that's, you know, that's just making sure people understand that is huge, right? So I'm guessing getting ran over by a case cart would probably negate the whole thing, right? Yep. Okay. That would yeah. definitely yeah. do yes. that. Yeah. Yes. So just checking. I just wanted to make sure. You know. <laughs> nice try. Yeah. And, and we hope that doesn't happen, but we know that, you know, things happen in, in real life situations. So I, I had a question. Uh, I think Jen kind of mentioned it or she, she touched on it. What is it to be a trained eye? when they're doing inspections. Are you all trained at all in what to look for if a product drops, like what a pinhole actually looks like? Because those holes are very small. Um, And I'm wondering what level of training do you all receive or are told or how do you even look for that? Can I do this one? Um, It's a very scientific process where we take the package and we hold it up to the light and see if there's any light shining through. <laughs> Correct. As, and, you know, if it's inspection? a paper plastic, if it's a peel pouch, you know, if it's a paper plastic combination versus a Tyvek, you know, we're looking for tears in the tie and the mm-hmm. paper because, you know, paper is going to present itself with a damage differently than the Tyvek mm-hmm. would. I would almost think that the Tyvek would, you know, seeing a pinhole in the Tyvek would almost be harder to see on uh, than on paper. But um, oh, it Linda's right. It's just an eyeball inspection, really. Yeah. And well, not only do we inspect for holes, but we also inspect for debris. So Correct. we look for holes and also for debris and moisture, of course. And, and Sue, we I think it's equally that. important to uh, that, like a Kelly clamp is a Kelly clamp, but if it's a more sophisticated device, we have to worry about it being damaged if we drop right. it, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we so also like looking at the seals, if the seals are still intact. I was just going to ask that one, Sue. Is there training that's maybe across the board within healthcare facilities of inspecting the seal? I know that's one of the additions to our 11607 um, requirement for medical packaging is the inspection of the seals at point of use. Um, we're currently within my company going through updating our labels to add that verbiage of inspecting right. the sterile barrier prior to use. 
but we understand that our terminology that we use as packaging engineers is um, channels and on that not, not make sense to the healthcare professional. Um, so we've opted to include some examples of what inspection for integrity looks like. Is that something that is trained within the healthcare facility? It is in sterile processing and surgery for sure because we uh, the, the importance of the rest of the hospital I'm not so sure about. Sue and I think you're correct in that and, and Melinda would agree with this probably as well that we we have self-seal pouches and then we have um, either press uh, or roller heat sealers. So if there's any training, we're looking to see how good of a job we did sealing the pouch. We're not really looking at the manufacturer's seals. I mean, we are, but we're really focused on how we sealed the pouch because if there's an air bubble or a line or a crease, then that has to be rejected. And and that's all based usually with guidance from the IFU, from the manufacturer. Hey, Dave, do you guys do inspection of the materials themselves outside of the seals as well? Because it, just in the loading process and sealing, you could potentially be, um, again, creating a pinhole or a puncture um, if you're not careful. Absolutely. Uh, correct. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Melinda and Sue could also speak to you know, it's different in different uh, hospitals, like some places use self-seal and then some areas have like a peel pouch station where like that's all set up in an area on a nice smooth stainless steel table so that as you roll the pouch through the roller, it's not catching or snagging on anything. So you, you definitely see a lot of variation, but I think built into that is definitely the inspection. Um, yeah, and, and even through, the, through the process, really yeah. So in the Amy ST79 standard, steam sterilization standard, um, the section dealing with unloading specifically says that as we unload the sterilizer, once again, we need to inspect the items. So we're inspecting them for, once again, pinholes in case the sterilizer cart, you know, maybe it has a little sharp to it, a burr or whatever, um, for moisture and also just to make sure that it didn't run rub up against maybe a, a dirty cart and make sure the package is still clean. But definitely, it isn't included in the standard that we inspect the packages as they are unloaded from the cart. So back to Melinda's first question, is it okay if it drops? Um, where do packages drop from? Um, or is there a variety of different scenarios? Well, it's not okay if they drop and they should not be used. They should be taken out of service. You know, whether that means that an item is reprocessed that's made in the hospital if it's a disposable um, we need to remove that from service you could always contact the manufacturer and talk to them but for patient safety i would take it out of service yeah and i think to to specify that austin it could be like sue said off the autoclave cart it could be when i'm putting it on the shelf for storage it mm -hmm. could be when i'm picking a case and then it could be transport and then even in the OR, when they're setting up the case, they could drop it in the OR right in the uh, room. So we've talked a lot about inspection. I'm wondering if there's testing that is done um, specifically for peel pouches um, on that manufacturer seal. Are you guys testing not only visual inspection for integrity, but seal strength or peel force by chance? I wouldn't say that we're testing for it, but on our heat sealing devices, there are different temperature settings uh, for paper plastic combination or Tyvek plastic combination. And um, Sue and Melinda, I believe there's some manufacturers out there that also sell tests that you can buy uh, that you can test your heat sealers with. They're not very popular in use right now, but they, they are out there. I think, um, you know, Healthmark has a, a product they sell where you can you can put it in your heat sealer and it'll tell you whether it's sealing properly or not. Yeah, David, you're correct. There there are um, tests that are like a dye test that you put inside your peel pouch, you use it and seal. Um, but Tanya, to your point, like the, the peel strength, no, we definitely don't test for that. <laughs> we don't, um, for like David was saying earlier, really sterile processing concern is the seal that we make in those packages. Now, when something drops, we should 
be testing and looking at the manufacturer's seal of that package as well, right? To make sure that the weight of that instrument or the size of pressure didn't push through the seal that was already there made by the manufacturer. And then even after sterilization, because the peel packs expand and shrink, uh, expand and contract so many times during the sterilization process, making sure that that seal was still intact. That should be stuff that is looked at, like Sue was referring to, part of taking stuff off that cart. You know, that should be right away. The true thing is, I don't think that many people know to look at that and know that that should be part of their process. That's a great point on um, Melinda, on the expansion and the autoclave. I actually have some video of that. And if if people saw that, I mean, it literally blows up like a puffer fish, if you will. And that speaks to practices now because uh, the pouches are supposed to be on edge, correct? But sometimes you see them packed so densely that you, you almost need to give them room to breathe, so to speak, right? Where you don't want to put them on that. If you're lucky enough to have a rack to put your pouches on, you don't want to condense them in there so tightly. Uh, and to Sue's point, that's why we need to check it post-sterilization. Because if there was a poor seal, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to breach in that autoclave cycle. I think Tanya brought up a very good point earlier when she was talking about some of our practices in sterile processing. And Melinda also kind of touched on this. There's not a consistent practice for when something like this happens. So there's not like a, a guide that says you need to check for this, this, and this, and this is how you need to do it. It's just kind of a free-for-all, if you will. Uh, it's, okay, check for holes. I don't see any holes. It's good to go, right? So I, I think that's a big gap. Um, and I think there's probably also a, a gap from which the engineers test for and what we're looking for. So I don't know if any engineers can talk about uh, things that they look for when they're testing. Yeah, definitely. I could take that one. Um, so we we have a standard ISO requirement 11607 uh, dash one is specific to the design um, verification validation activities of the system itself. Dash two is specific to seals. Um, and I think what I'm hearing on the call is the packaging engineers of creation of the systems will ensure that we are meeting the requirement um, from an ex- extent of getting the the product to the cu- customer healthcare facility in its package system. You know, we've done extensive testing on the stereo barrier itself um, through visual inspection, um, bubble leak testing, seal strength testing. Um, ASTM is a, a common organization that we would test to. But then once we get to the healthcare facility, now re-sterilization, I guess, is a little bit different. Um, but Essentially, this same sort of test, I would imagine, would apply in the healthcare facility for re-sterilization, um, specifically for stale pouches. You know, looking at the, the same things to ensure that your barrier isn't breached, that it's still maintained and intact. I had thought that 11607 applied not only for development, the you know, the sterile barrier, but also for the re-sterilization in the healthcare facility. Has anybody heard um, similar things? Yeah, this is Jen, and you might hear my dog in the background. Sorry. So, Tanya, it's been developed uh, for healthcare systems to use. However, it's mostly outside the U.S. that it is used as as the go-to method for sterile packaging and reprocessing. Um, ST79 is typically the document, correct me if I'm wrong, healthcare workers out there, um, that is used in the reprocessing departments uh, in the United States. Right. That doesn't mean that the U.S. can't use 11607. They just don't because they have their own standard. Okay. Jen's referring to that is what we use in the healthcare facilities. So we we refer back to the Amy SD79 steam sterilization standard. There's a whole section on packaging. And does that align with 11607, Jen, do you know? It has not intended to be in alignment at this point, no. Yeah, to my knowledge, the 11607 was new, is a newer update. When did that, when did the newer update come out for the 
Um, it's, it's included the um, healthcare side uh, for as long as I can remember. Uh, however, in 2019, a new uh, version of it has been released. So uh, I think this um, the ST79 that we have, we're at 2017 version. Um, yeah. So with the new uh, version coming, like we, if we work on the new version, it'll most likely have some correlation. Yeah, and I hope that we can do that because I think that what we've learned through not only clearly these podcasts, but the KIP in general, that there's a lot of overlap that we have and there's a lot that we can learn from each other. So, you know, it's really fun to see it coming through from KIP into these podcasts, into crossovers in conferences and also into the standards meetings. So it's really it's really a fun evolution to be part of and watch. It is. You guys have done a lot of the research, so we don't need to recreate the wheel again. Thank you. Yes. And, you know, Sue, that that brings up a, a, an interesting point. I was just thinking about, remember back in the days um, when we had reusable textiles before the disposable blue wrap, if you will? You know, that was very robust. If you did that the right way and followed the Amy ST65 guidance, um, I remember doing pressure testing for the materials and doing random sampling. I mean, it was really robust. And now we just buy the blue wrap and trust that the manufacturers have done all this testing, right? I think with the pandemic and with the shortages, you've seen a lot of people kind of go back to reusable textiles. And I'm always online reminding them that, you know, you there's a whole other Amy document, the Amy ST65 reprocessing um, textiles. Um, that, that that the guidance needs to be followed but um and as part of that there's qa and there's testing but um you know everything else we buy today is single use so it, you're right it falls on the manufacturer does st79 refer to astm standards like an 11607 not routinely we talk about it during the meeting mm-hmm. um but to your point is it included i'd have to go back and check because we do refer back to them and the, of course, members of the Amy SC 79 are also members of the ASTM. So, so there's the, crossover. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and just to kind of switch, switch the gears a little bit, you know, we focused on peel pouches and drops. Uh, if we go back to that original question about questionable practices, I mean, there's a whole host of others as well. Oh, there's, gosh, yeah. there's the classic, you know, put it in my pocket, which I think you know, I think when we first started getting together as a group, that was one of our primary things we talked about. Um, but, you know, there's the pocket, there's, there's, you know, people that may store things in their personal lockers and, you know, areas that really aren't designated for sterile storage. And, um, you know, we have to contend with all that as well. You know what? I can remember during one of the shortages and I shouldn't say this, but some of the nurses were hiding the supplies in the ceiling tiles. <laughs> yeah. Many, many, many years ago. I've yeah. also, of course, yeah. now we're having supply shortages again, so maybe we should check those ceiling tiles. Yeah, correct. <laughs> and um, and then, oh, go ahead, Melinda. Sorry, sorry, Dave. I think movable ceiling tiles should be banned from sterile processing <laughs> for that reason. And then also my staff used to hide, um, you know, like they would sterilize locks in case one of the locks broke Oh no, no, no. up in the ceiling tile. So like in bags. So yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, we start looking at like post sterilization, like things are sterile, uh, whether we sterilize them or they're from a manufacturer and then it has to be put into inventory, right? It needs to be put into sterile storage. So I think earlier we were having some conversations about that and the practices we've seen with either rubber bands or staples, I think. So one of you guys had mentioned some products were stapled together. And then I mentioned that I had seen, you know, long catheters poke through a hook like it was a bag of potato chips, you know. So, uh, David, uh, I've seen that too. <laughs> yeah. So, the, you know, we have to be cognizant of that. And I think then the question came up, like, how does that happen or who does that? And and what we have to be careful of is we have aides, we have helpers, we have people who we try to free up the nurses and the people with certain skill sets. 
and sterile goods will come up and they'll say, here, um, you know, have the aid put this all away. Um, I know at my last facility, the aid would actually do count. You do a core count. You have to replenish your inventory. So you, someone has to do a count on the cart and determine what's missing. And they send that order downstairs and then it's replenished. And then it's usually an aide putting that away and they may not have that training or that skill set. I think um, someone said earlier that, that you, they've also seen those big binder clips, like the big blind, uh, binder. Oh, Dave, like, that was me. I brought yeah. it up because when my daughter had, she, she, my youngest daughter didn't tolerate um, being sedated for her teeth. Oh. She needed to get, because her, her enamel hadn't formed properly. So she had to get caps on the backs of her teeth. So she had to get knocked out for it and brought into the hospital for the procedure. Um, so, you know, relatively innocuous procedure, but there was a sterile device that was hanging up over the bed in the patient waiting room that was clamped in a metal clamp with like the nice big, you know, metal teeth inside the <laughs> sterile area. And I was, I was kind of blown away by it. Cause you know, yeah. like I, I see those things, right. That That's, that's what I look for, but it's, it just kind of shocked me, um, but I get it at the same time because not everyone thinks in terms of sterile packaging the way I do. But that doesn't you know, necessarily mean that the bugs care, right? The bugs don't sure. care if it's been handled properly or not. If if there's a hole there and there's an opportunity for the bug to get through, not that they have brains, but they can, you know. It'll find a way. They'll yeah. find a way. Yep. Yeah. And, it and really so, depends on what class bug it is, you know. Is it yeah, a high and, bug, a low, you know. But <laughs> a, a bug's a bug, Melinda. A bug can cause infection. Like that's yeah. the problem, right? We don't know what you, those bugs are. You know, Maybe I think that's bugs out there. Anyway, well, I think so. that speaks to. Um, I was going to mention that to Sue and Melinda because you know we were we were in the uh, in the field and um, is like in lean. They you have to do a go see, and if you designate or delegate those tasks to others. If you have those skill sets, you have to go out there. You it, it speaks to the importance of doing self-audits. You go through your inventory. You go out there and look. And then, you, God forbid, you see a paper clip or, you know, because people are very creative. They don't they only know what they know if they didn't have that training. Mm -hmm. So they might they might hang it like a like a potato chip bag. They might. But it's up to us as the leadership to really try to do that. Go see, you know, you should have that built into your quality system your quality uh management system where you um get out there and go look at these uh, areas dave that's yeah. a really good point um getting out and just seeing what happens is, is really important as a packaging engineer too going to the manufacturing environment hopefully the hospital systems as well mm -hmm. mentioned um kind of risk management or kind of a risk assessment earlier on in in the manufacturing realm we have to consider things like what's the severity of something occurring what is the occurrence of it happening and then is it detectable um how often do these drops or, or you know paper clip or binder clip instances happen in, in your guys' experience i don't see it a whole lot maybe more when maybe sue when we and melinda when we hire new techs and they're just you know and then there's just people who you know um, like we say, have slippery fingers. There's people that are just more prone to dropping things maybe than others, but, um, it, it, it doesn't happen where it's, um, uh, I, in my career experience, it, it, it happens on a infrequent basis, but I, when it does, it's always at the worst time with the worst, time. like you needed that item for the surgery. And of course it falls on the floor, right? Oh. And even the poor techniques, because um, I, when I was a consultant, I saw it, but not a lot. I would say maybe less than 1%. But when it happens, it just sends chills down your spine. In fact, Jennifer, I'm surprised you didn't fall on the floor when you saw that package being clipped. But Sue, it's the only reason why I didn't, again, is because she was there to get metal caps on her teeth. <laughs> if she was there for an invasive procedure, I... I I would have called it out, but I mean, there's, there's a few things that I'd probably call out, you know, like yeah. the wearing oh, booties yeah. outside of I mean, the, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of things, but, um, I mean, the shock of it was what I was getting at. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. 
we can talk about that over drinks sometime as to yeah. why I didn't or did say something, but yeah. No, I, I get that 100%. It's just to see it as, as a shock. But people don't know what they don't know. And I think one of the things that we're seeing now in healthcare facilities, especially with COVID, there's a lot of facilities using the disinfecting lights, which are great to, you know, for disinfecting rooms. You know, there's still some studies that need to be done with them. But what hasn't been really taken into consideration is, you know, what happens when we put these disinfecting lights or even these mist systems in a room and there's sterile packages? What effect does that have on the sterile packages? Good point. Is that something we should be thinking about? I, I would say absolutely. And um, Sue, as we know, when if you're lucky enough to have windows in your department, right? We don't want direct sunlight on our products because we know that's detrimental. And, you know, sometimes when you, you could see the difference in your packaging that's up maybe higher on a top shelf that's closer to the mm -hmm. lights. And it's interesting in the hospital because we've gone from um, fluorescence, fluorescent bulbs to now a lot of places are switching to LED. But um, I've seen uh, that be detrimental to packages. And now, like you said, these UV lights are very powerful. And then that misting product, you know, what's yeah. the material compatibility? We don't know. Or maybe we do know, but we're not considering it. Do our Is that a new technology? Sorry, Sue. I was just going to say, do our packaging engineers know if that has an effect on the packaging material? I think we have to know it's going to be used yeah. um, specific for the wipes or the, the chemical that might be placed mm -hmm. on. If, if we're not aware that that's happening in the healthcare facility, we wouldn't necessarily test for that. Now, that would be, I can speak, I guess, for the, the sterile pouch or tray itself but for labels that's a different story i think labels has more scrutiny around it um from rubbing or not being able to read those labels and i'm wondering if there's been instances from wiping that has happened where we've we can't read labels so uh from a materials supplier standpoint um strongly not don't don't wipe them down um with disinfectant, uh, you can, especially for porous materials, you can actually allow uh, microbes to be able to be pushed through into the sterile barrier and potentially can uh, violate your sterile barrier. I know it's not ideal, but uh, I can't speak to non-porous barriers, but um, for porous barriers, don't do it. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. You're asking for trouble. And and Jen, you, you probably have some of that information as well. I mean, UV lights on those porous materials, that can definitely change the characteristics over time. Sure. I mean, I can, I, I, you know, I mean, I think for from a paper standpoint, I think we've all, you know, felt and seen paper that's been exposed to uh, light for too long. It gets a little bit brittle and starts cracking after a while and almost disintegrating. And Tyvek itself, uh, there are no UV um, protectants in there uh, because of the nature of what it's being used for. And so over time, the light will degrade the material and its properties. That's Another reason why, you know, keeping that, that protective shelf carton around it mm -hmm. until the point of use is so critical. Or out of, you know, direct line of that sunlight or anything or anything like that as well, or even those UV lights or disinfecting UV lights, those those over time can definitely have an effect on that. Good information. So, Jen, like just a couple of things that you were bringing up. Um, so one of the things with the UV, my I tend to question, does the reflection off of the packages, I wonder if there's been any studies done, like because we know when you're doing UV um, disinfection for the rooms, there shouldn't be any reflection happening and so I wonder if the packages present any type of reflection that kind of negate the whole process, um, but just something that I was curious about. Um, but, and then when you mentioned wiping, so you're talking about like, let's say a peel pouch falls on the floor, they pick it up and they wipe it with a, a wipe, correct? Correct. 
Okay. So I know that's questions been coming up quite a bit in like a few of our conversations and um, some conversations I've had with other people. So it's something that people are seeing out there. I have personally not seen it, um, but I know it's come up in quite a bit of our conversations. So. I think and you're right, Melinda. Yeah. The last thing I just wanted to touch on was something like Sue was talking about, you know, the importance of understanding and knowing. And I think this goes back to the huge importance of having a dedicated sterile processing educator in the departments. You know, all these changes, all this information we're talking about, all this education, we're just starting to see an uptick in that. But it really needs to catch up with every other department having, you know, their dedicated educator. So I just wanted to throw that out. So going back to your concept of of the UV um, disinfection of of rooms and stuff, I I know that it's probably not ideal, but I, packages really shouldn't be stored in the rooms that need to be disinfected. They should be kept away from those areas. I I know Melinda, I I, I see your face. <laughs> um, they haven't been tested for that. Right. It, sure. And, and how many times are you exposing it? There are no tests available that that are doing that at this point that I know of. So they're not designed to be put through that. Uh, and, and again, from from the disinfectant standpoint, um, they haven't been tested for it. And, and, and you could have um, through exposure of like a liquid in a wipe desecrated your your sterile barrier and, and you won't even know it. That's the part that is, is devastating, right? You won't even know it. Yeah. Yeah. For the so, most part, them, they're usually in a, a cabinet for the most part. There are some that are out. I mean, not everyone is, but for the most part, like they're the extra supplies that are needed during the surgical procedure, you know, that might come up and they need to grab them quickly. Those are kept into inside a closed cabinet system. Um, however, that being said, we all know there's always those gloves that are laying around the extra pack of gloves or um, suture packs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that are left out. Yeah, I, I think I think it's something that I don't, I don't know of any study, but I think it's something that that in in the long term, if KIP, one of the groups in KIP doesn't look at it, it should be looked at. Um, I don't know who would own it, but it's something that should be discussed at the very least, especially from a healthcare perspective, maybe with the people that are offering the disinfectant system, like mm -hmm. how does this impact our packages that we, that it may get exposed to? They might not have the answer, but the conversation needs to be started. Well, we should start the conversation because there's different types of UV lights. So yes. we need to understand them a whole lot more. And, you know, like I said earlier, there's also like the hydrogen peroxide misting units. Uh, certainly, we don't want them by our sterile packages. Um, and also, one thing with these UV lights, we were talking a lot about surgery, but keep in mind they use them throughout the hospital, you know, in the emergency room, the labor and delivery, patient, regular patient care areas. So it's, they're not just confined to surgery, they are used throughout. And we use sterile packages throughout the hospital. Yeah, Sue, so, and I think it's, um... It's uh, and to and to Melinda's point also to talk about the storage cabinets. There still is a lot of old school stainless steel storage cabinets with windows in them that oh, were yeah. passed through from the center core to the OR. So that's something to consider. Maybe if you're looking to replace or build a new OR, because that might still be offered on the market. You know, mm -hmm. so if you if you're going to disinfect your rooms with UV light, you know, you don't want. It's nice to be able to see what's in the cabinet, but then there's a downside to it. And then um, I know with the UV light also, uh, you know, you have like the perfusion machine in there and there's all kinds of tubing and things that sit in the room. So um, that has to be considered also, you know, where um, what's the effect on the uh, on the any anything that's exposed, basically tubing or uh, anything that's on the equipment in the room. Yeah, I wonder if they take that stuff out. I don't know if they or cover it. Yeah. Cover it. Um, but David, I wanted to go back real quick, touch on something. You talked about carrying stuff around in your pocket. So <laughs> what, 
what's the problem with carrying stuff in our pocket? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it, I guess it depends. Like, what pocket? You know, is it in your back pocket? Is it in a warm-up jacket, a lab coat? You know, and uh, when was the last time that that jacket was laundered? And and you know, again, we t it, what's the difference between dropping it on the floor and compressing it in your pocket? Uh, you know, maybe a nurse or someone put it in their pocket in the morning and they had it in their pocket throughout the day, you know, and uh, what's the impact on all that? So I, I would, I, in my system, we would count that as a, uh, under event-related sterility, that would be an event, you know? And Melinda, thank you for circling back to that because something I didn't get to mention earlier and I sort of wanted to was some of the reasons why those instances might might cause events is, you know, with a sitting in your pocket, if it's in your back pocket or, you know, a drop, well, there might be a force of impact there that could cause a puncture, cause a pinhole. Um, and we may not realize it at the moment. So that's one reason why something in like your pocket or a drop could cause it because we also, like Dave mentioned, you know, how recently was that pocket laundered? It might be something there, there may be something in the pocket now that if you have that pinhole, it is light, it is more likely to actually navigate through that pinhole into the product. You have that bug, so to speak, in there now. So that's one of those reasons uh, that we definitely want to avoid using something that's been dropped or stuffed in a pocket. Um, if it, let's say it, ha it was just stuffed in there and there was nothing in there with it and it was in a loose pocket, well, it, it might also be the way that it was in there because maybe it had to fold or crease or something. Same thing with like hanging with binder clips. The, what happens when you are putting that amount of pressure on those materials for prolonged periods is it starts to, I don't want to say warp, but it can affect the, the polymer structures of those materials. And that can lead to a weakness in that material that might cause a future pinhole. And that's one of those reasons, you know, we don't want them rubber banded for three years while this sterile disposable item is waiting to be used. Um, you've created those folds and you've sort of pulled on those polymer chains. And that's sort of one of those reasons why, you know, hanging it with a, hanging it by these like jawed clips or, stuffing it in your pocket and it's kind of crunched and creased. Uh, a lot of times we get told when we're developing our, our packaging, you know, gentle folds, gentle curls, no folds, no creases. So that's sort of what we live by. And that's part of the reason why. And I, hopefully that information is helpful to you all in those healthcare facilities to uh, if you see those, now you have an understanding of why they're not um, ideal. I wanted to just kind of piggyback on that. I think, you know, that's awesome information. I didn't even think about, you know, the breakdown of the material like that. Um, the other concept too that I thought about was the pressure from the instruments hanging, you know, adding that pressure on that bottom seal of that pouch. Um, you know, most people don't think about that, you know, mm -hmm. granted, we all face space issues and space constraints and we think we have to like think outside the box. How can we store our items without compressing them and or shoving them into bins? But, you know, it really comes down to a par level to control that. However, hanging them is just not really the answer for that because of that pressure. And I just yeah. wanted to ask Jen, does, um, Lint bunnies count as those ugly little bugs? Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I cannot confirm or deny that they do, Melinda, but what I can tell you is that bugs like to travel on particles, and those little lint buddies are, buggy bunnies are made up of a whole bunch of little particles. So I would have to assume that, yeah, they're carrying something. What? Again, I have no idea. Don't know that I want to know. Um, but yeah, they're probably carrying something. Melinda, I think that was a great... Oh, go ahead, Sue. You know, no, this is Jody. One thing that um, wasn't touched upon when we think about transporting these packages in pockets, you know, temperature has a significant impact on the packaging as well. And um, I know that depending on the person who's carrying it, you don't know how long it's been in their pocket. 
Um, maybe they put it in their pocket, put it back on the shelf, grabbed it tomorrow, put it back in their pocket. All of those um, pieces factor into that. How long has it has it been in a temperature range that is, you know, outside of ideal conditions? Good point. Yeah, some people are hotter than others, you know. <laughs> and I can't speak to a lot of the like uh, wraps, sterile wraps and stuff, but I mean, luckily a lot of the multi-structure films, some of those uh, PE films and stuff, they they do have a much higher melt point and stuff. So I've not known anyone to run 200 degrees Fahrenheit, but you know, <laughs> we're it we're not really at that softening point yet. You know, their temperature. So luckily that, I mean, there definitely is a concern to keep things outside of what the recommended storage conditions are. Um, but hopefully we're not at that for long enough that we would start to hit a softening of those materials. So maybe taking a step back to UV light and um, that mist technology, how prominent is that? Is it kind of new in healthcare systems or has it been grandfathered in? It's relatively new, especially with COVID. I think there's been a big uptick in it. And it, it, the, the use of those is actually recommended in the AORN standard or guideline rather. And, you know, they recommend it's used as an adjunct to cleaning. And then it, this, the guideline goes on to talk about, you know, make sure that you know what kind you're using. There hasn't been a whole lot of um, research on these. And the other thing is there's no regulation on these right now. Is so, it, yeah, it, it is a relatively new technology. What's the intended use? Is it to, to clean an OR? Is it to clean packaging specifically? It's to disinfect a room, not, not necessarily just OR, but also a patient's room. Um, if a patient's in isolation and they clean the room, they may put this disinfecting light in that room. And the same mm -hmm. holds true for even in an emergency suite. They may, you know, the patient may leave and they'll to disinfect the room real quick, they put this disinfecting light in. That's interesting. I mean, so you know this, in the repetitive handling study, um, we found out that there's a wide range of what UV light can be in terms of intensity. Um, do you guys know of any specifications on what the range of UV intensity is being used there? Give me a few minutes, I'll look it up. Very bright. Yeah, <laughs> and I think yeah, there's you different can't be in the room. Yeah, I think there's like, you know, there's UV, uh, UVC and, you know, and and who knows if certain models have, you know, I don't know if they can patent that, but like, you know, different companies will come out with different spectrums to kind of say ours is better or this one's better. Hmm. Hey, Austin, do you want us to translate that to foot candles? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Is there a suggestion on how packaging engineers could go about understanding what is being used and if there's been a change specific to either the, the UV lights or using disinfected material? I can say I think this is going back to what the whole Kilmer and um, the whole kit process is, is trying to bring the two worlds together, right? Like, how can you guys really understand what's happening in the hospital? Um, you know, when we, like, a, for instance, the dropping thing, no, when we talk about drop, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we do tests for drop. And then we're like, wait, are you talking about the same dropping I'm talking about? Like, so there's, we're talking the same words, but they mean different things. And I think the more we have these conversations and these, we bring everybody together at the table and say, hey, like, let's talk about this and learn from each other. You, Everybody gets more understanding. Truly it's for manufacturers, I think, really getting on the boots on the ground level with the like sterile processing department, the materials management department, you know, OR, if you can get in and visit and um, watch and observe and learn from some facility, that would be huge benefit, I think, to you guys as well. And if, uh, you know, if there's a way we can come and watch, I think, you know, vice versa. If that's, I think, the way yeah. we're going to get better. I agree. It's the boots on the ground to go see each other's. Anyways, I did look up 
the room decontamination systems in the AORN um, environmental cleaning guideline. And in here it says there are continuous ultraviolet lights, eight to 20 minutes. There's also pulsed Xeon lights, which I have 20 to um, 83.7. I'm not sure exactly what that, that is. Um, there's dry mist, 18 to 52 minutes, and there's a vapor, one and a half to three hours. So there's different types. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious if those are, when those are tested and for release, they're done on, must be some sort of an organism in a room. I'm really curious if they ever test the effects on anything else that could be present in the room. And that's, that's what I'm thinking, you know, the packaging, if it is, or those errant gloves, like, or pack of gloves or any of that stuff, what does a vapor for three hours do to the product? Um, you know, we, we have film structures that oftentimes the tie layer in between the, the film. So these films are typically, you know, multi layers to provide different, I guess, barriers that you might need, whether it be an oxygen or a moisture barrier or something like that. But sometimes those layers that bond them two together are moisture soluble. So it's very, you know, if they're in between, it's difficult to get to that layer, but you still have those edges that oh, right. repeated exposure to moisture can sometimes hasten a delamination. Um, so I'm wondering if any of that has ever been tested when they're saying, yeah, this the system can be used in a room. Are they ever looking at what else is possibly in the room and the effects of that technology on those products? I would recommend contacting the manufacturer of those light systems and those mm -hmm. decontamination systems and see what they tested it on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember. I remember when before I left my prior hospital, that was part of the discussion, and uh, particularly with the perfusion or the uh, anesthesia machines, because they're in the room, they stay in the room, and they have all kinds of tubing and hoses on them, and um, that was that was part of the discussion. I, 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 Sue, I looked up another device too that goes in an OR, and it says that uh, this device is UVC light and it says it's between 200 and 280 nanometers as far as the wavelengths wow. concerned um but i'm sure they have to do this compatibility and and to your point earlier what, what we were saying about like can it hold up well a, a lot of hospitals are saying look we're going to do this once every 24 hours so like every night at like when the OR shuts down at one in the morning we're going to bring the units in here and do the OR so this isn't just like a one-shot deal this is mm -hmm. you know potentially every 24 hours and if that package yeah. is in the room it got exposed to that you know six times seven times this week so good point yeah it's some geek testing yeah I, I was thinking yeah. this is also something that when we're developing our packaging and we're doing our our formative usability studies, we need to be asking the users that we're in contact with, you know, do they use any of these types of um, disinfecting equipment and is our product stored in that area? Because we would need to test I, for sure if we have a product with a shelf life of four years, five years, two years, we're not testing it with a nightly uh you know, UV light disinfecting or UV spray disinfecting, that is something that we would need to close a gap on. Yeah, I agree. I know um, when we were back in the pandemic, when we were all doing the N95s, um, you know, part, I know ultraviolet, they were using those at one time for the N95s. And I want to say it was around 220, somewhere around there. The other concept that I just thought about as Dave was talking was, you know, sterile processing is really trying to, there's a lot of push that UV lights need to start, you know, they need to bring, bring them into the sterile processing department, right? Treat it just like they would the OR. And so that includes utilizing UV deep, uh, disinfection. So having a time frame where the department gets UV disinfected and now that we're talking about this and packaging, like what is going to be the effects on all of that stuff over time, right? It's even like your locks, 
your your class one or type one chemical indicators. How is that going to affect all of those products? Absolutely. I'm not sure who is there a department in the healthcare facilities that if they implement something like this, that before they implement it, they have to do some sort of an assessment or is it sort of at the trust of the supplier that it's been done and it would work in the facility? Well, typically it would go to the infection prevention and control committee and they should do a risk assessment. And it's, that's actually a good interdisciplinary team because there's typically environmental services on that maintenance, um, infection prevention is of course in sterile processing, but do we have all the information needed to make that type of a decision? I'm not so sure about that. Cause we're, I mean, here we are, you're packaging engineers and we're talking about it and we don't have the answers. So how would a hospital have all the answers? Mm -hmm. But these are questions that need to be asked, you know, and maybe in a lot of times sterile packages may not be in the room, but you know, what if they are And back to Dave's point, what if it's done routinely? What effect does that have? Uh, good questions. We need to start looking at and doing some research in that, in that area. Because it is possible that the raw materials, and I'm using raw materials as in the unused wraps or the unused paper pouches or the unused peel pouches of some sort, that the sterile that the reusable products go in prior to sterilization, if they are sitting out and exposed to whatever that is, that cleaning or that's that disinfecting processes that's going on that absolutely could affect um, that product before and by the product, I mean that raw material, um, even though it's technically not used yet, but then you go to put something in it. I mean, it could affect how it, how it is processed through an autoclave. So does, you know, for an sure. example. And Sue mentioned the misting, the misting units are, you know, they, they'll use vaporized, hydrogen peroxide, and then some of them have silver ions as well. So, you know, what's what's the compatibility with that? Because that, that's no wipe, that's no wipe, no rinse. They, mm -hmm. they claim it, you know, goes back to, uh, it just evaporates into uh, water vapor or something like that. Yeah, because uh, another thought that I had is, you have these porous materials and let's say it doesn't fully, you know, penetrate through or permeate through that layer, could it come in contact with the product at some at some point? What is what is the leaching that's going on through that? We do biocompatibility testing on all of our materials before we uh, release a product, and that would include the packaging. But what if in those porous materials you get some of that chemical trapped between those those layers or that web? Well, that sounds like a good research project. Yeah, Jen, and you taking notes you know, on on future kit projects. I, I, think, I think Austin's putting it in the parking lot. Um, <laughs> we've got oh, lots okay. of projects to be looking into. There's 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 so many questions that come up so often um, yeah. in our conversations like this that it's going to take us a while to get to some. <laughs> of them. In the meantime, we just have to do the best that we can using what we know, right? Right. Um, and Jen, at least the conversations are taking place, right? Because we only exactly. know what we know. Right. Exactly. That's kind of exactly. when we put these groups together. We said as users, we only know what we know. We're looking through this lens and, you know, and then as engineers, you guys, you know, and I think that was the greatest part of our first meetings was just the shock and awe of learning. <laughs> Wait a minute. Sides. What did you just say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> perspectives, you know, Absolutely. It, it really eye opening. Absolutely. So we are about out of time, guys. Thank you again for another informative discussion. Thank you for your insight and perspective uh, on these questionable practices. So again, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks again to everybody on the KIPP committee and the last 100 yards. Isham Nation, episode 50 is in the books. Thanks for listening to the show. 
To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes. From here, you will be directed to the new Isham Learning Center. Simply log in, register, mark the podcast as completed, and select the code PAPERCLIP. Again, the code for this episode is PAPERCLIP. Remember, keep an ear out for the next episode always on the 1st and 15th of every month. Each episode's on demand, so when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy, and we'll see you next time.